Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Unhurrying with the Rule of Life series. Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said that to a mentee of his by the name of John Ortberg. If you're not familiar with John, he's one of my all-time favorite pastors and writers from a generation ahead of me. I would not call him a mentor. He's a little bit out of my league, but we do have lunch two or three times a year. I was actually just with him a few days ago on Monday. And John is kind of, you have those people in your life who are like, this is who I wanna be when I grow up. Do you have anybody like that? If not, you should. John is that for me. And when John first told me that story of what Willard said to him, I had these two equal and opposite reactions. On one hand, my mind, in all honesty, said, that's ridiculous. Hurry? Like, hurry is the great enemy of, like, the great Satan or something of life in the Western world. Uh, That's just not what I would have put language to. I mean, our city, as most of you know, was recently named the least religious city in America. And if you were to ask me prior to hearing that story, hey, what's the greatest challenge you face in just following Jesus in Portland, much less, you know, attempting to pastor other people to do the same, I don't know what I would have said, partisan politics or income inequality or racial injustice or the sexualization of everything, or I don't, I don't know what I would have said. I doubt Hurry would have even made the list, much less have made the top spot. But then on the other hand, at a gut level, when I first, that, that language first came into my mind, I had this like gut level resonance with reality. It's almost like if you think of a tuning fork, it's the best metaphor I can think. Have you ever had that? So you hit a tuning fork and literally your bones reverberate with middle C because you're tapping into, middle C is like a mathematical reality that God created in the universe. And a tuning fork just helps you like tap in and resonate with this reality at the center of existence. And it felt like that to me. And the longer that I have sat with Willard's thesis that hurry is really the great enemy that we face in our time, the more that I agree, the more I have come to believe that hurry is the issue underneath so many of the other issues, chronic anger, outrage culture, low-grade anxiety, the rise of suicide, mental illness, secularization, violence, materialism, digital distraction, loneliness, exhaustion, burnout, you name it. Even Carl Jung, the psychologist who coined the language of introvert and extrovert and made about 40% of us finally feel like human beings again, and whose work, the introvert in the room, yes? Okay, thank you. Um, You're like, no, it's really, it's really, I'm stuck with it. Um, Whose work was the basis for the Myers-Briggs theory of personality, once said that hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word devil, I don't know, I mean, most of us think of like a demon with a red pitchfork, or if you're a little bit older, Will Ferrell on SNL playing rock and roll. Very few of us think of a stream of alerts on our phone or overtime at our job or another activity crammed into the weekend or a third sport for a little Johnny or whatever it is into a life of speed. And yet the effect of hurry on the soul is devastating. Four years ago, before we started practicing the way that we're you know, three years into, 
I scheduled a meeting with a well-respected psychologist who is also a follower of Jesus, who's been in that field of inquiry for four or five decades. And I just wanted to get his critique of our working theory of change, if you can draw that to your mind, like the triangle thing. Most of you know that from basics or a past teaching series. And the model of church that we are about to embark on with kind of practice, a practice and community-based approach to apprenticeship to Jesus and spiritual formation. So I gave them the download, and here's what we're thinking, and here's our working theory of change, and I've been learning all this stuff about psychology, and I basically asked him to speak into it, critique, disagree, all of that, and he had very little to say. Basically said, yep, that was great, here's something that Jung said about that, here's something that neuroscience says about that, da, da, da. But he basically had one thing to say, and I will never forget it. He said, the number one problem you will face is time. Then he said, in my experience, after 40 plus years as a therapist, where his job is literally to help people grow and mature and live a healthy and free life. He said, quote, most people are just too busy to live an emotionally healthy and spiritually rich life. Psychologists now diagnose people with hurry sickness. It's actually a thing, not just a joke. Psychology Today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time. Anybody in the room? and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Hence me this morning driving here to talk about hurry and Burnside was closed and I all of a sudden was late and in a hurry and did not feel hurry sickness. The moniker hurry sickness was coined actually all the way back in the 50s by Meyer Friedman who was the cardiologist who first connected the dots between chronic stress and anger and heart disease. And he defined it as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish and or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. And he identified this as a major problem for cardiac health in the 50s. Half a century later, hurry is like a contagion that has spread through Western society. Quote, time perspective therapists, not making that up, Rosemary Sword and psychologist Philip Zimbardo of Stanford in their book on this offer three symptoms to self-diagnose whether or not you have hurry sickness. Number one, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. (laughs) You know who all of you are. Two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and change lanes. Okay, now we're getting a little deeper, guilty as charged. Three, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure we all have hurry sickness. The ongoing effect of busyness on our soul and on our society is really starting to take its toll. I mean, just think about it. What's the first thing most people say when you ask the customary, hey, how's it going, or how are you? What do most people say? Oh, good, just busy. Pay attention, and in my experience, you will hear this across the lines of gender, class, Ethnicity, the urban-suburban divide, everybody is busy. College kids are busy. Young parents are busy. Professionals are busy. Working-class people are busy. Empty nesters in the Pearl are busy. Retired couples in rural Oregon are busy. Everybody is busy. At least everybody in the West, all my African friends, love to tell me, you Americans, you're just all so busy. It's like they show up and think, what has happened to your society? It's sped out of control. Now, we need to clarify there are a few different types of busyness. There's a type of busyness that just means you have a lot to do. 
You're not wasting your life on Call of Duty or like the Netflix binge or just trivial things, but you're really giving your life away to what matters and, and the precious commodity of time. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. But there's another far more common type of busyness that Ronald Rollheiser calls pathological busyness, which is where you have not a lot to do, but you have too much to do. That's the essence of it. It was the second kind of busyness that Bill Gates was referring to when he said, busy is the new stupid. Gotta love that. The essence of pathological busyness, or if you prefer, hurry, is that we have too much to do. And so the only way to cram it all in is to speed up our mind and our body and our relationships to this frenetic pace just to get it all in before the end of the day. And this has all sorts of implications for our emotional health and our spiritual life. The professor, Michael Zigarelli, conducted a survey of 20,000 Christians in the U.S. and identified busyness as the major block in people's relationship to God. Listen to his summary of a 20,000-plus person survey. Quote, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle begins again. Pastors, by the way, in his survey were the worst. He rated pastors right up there with doctors and lawyers for being caught up in busyness. Not this pastor, but Gerald really has an issue with that. (laughs) He's out of town, I can say whatever I want. But it's true, it's true. I was cut to the heart a few years ago when I read Ruth Haley Barton's 10 Sighs, 10 Times That You're Moving Too Fast Through Life. Just take a deep breath for this one. Sign one, irritability. Like you're just quick to just like, you know, especially think, don't think of like somebody you don't know very well. Think of somebody you live with or a spouse or a child. You're just quick to, you know, grouch at person or grumpy, hypersensitivity, just really easy. Hey, what? Da, 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 defensive. Restlessness, when we actually do try to calm down and sleep or take a day off, we can't rest. We have to reach for our phone. We have to turn on the music. We have to bring the stimuli back because we feel all of this anxiety in our body and we're exhausted, but still we can't sleep. Compulsive overworking, we just can't stop answering email after email or thing after thing or task after task or errand after errand. Emotional numbness. We just have this weird, like, narrow range of emotions. The main thing that we feel is really just anger and anxiety. Other than that, we feel pretty flat. We just don't have this capacity for empathy, which takes time to slow down and feel what another person is feeling. Escapist behavior is just binge-watching The Crown on Netflix, if that's your thing, or whatever it is, um, or on social media all the time, or shopping, or work, or church, or whatever your you know, cultural narcotic of choice is. Disconnected from our identity and calling, we forget who we are and who we're not, what we're called to do and what we're not called to do, and so we just get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, and our life is far more reactive than it is proactive. Not able to attend to human needs, basic things like sleep. I read a number of surveys that said prior to Edison and Lightbulb, the average American slept 11 hours a night. Just think about that for a moment, and just... Then think about politics and just wonder about whether or not those two things are connected, right? Just the le- I just mean the level of anger and anxiety and like, just think about that. 
What does it do to whole society? Now the average is seven, and most of us feel great if we get that. Or exercise, or cooking our own food, or not eating out all the time, or just rest. Hoarding energy, like you ever have that feeling where you're like, I can't really get too involved with this person or this thing, because like, I gotta be ready for the next thing. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, I'm not the only one. And then finally, slippage in our spiritual practices. The time that we dedicate to cultivate and nurture and turn our attention and our awareness over to God and to receive his love and be transformed into people of love, that goes down as our to-do list goes up, which is the exact opposite of what you see in the life of Jesus. Are we having fun yet, by the way? Like, just here to, just to pass on guilt and shame to all of you. Um, no, not remotely. That's not the point of this exercise. When I first read this, I was at least seven for 10, and my wife probably would have said, no, 100%, you're 10 for 10. The point is, there's more at stake here than just our emotional health. Some of us, if you're more kind of melancholy like me, then you can't like live a life of hurry and a happy life. Some of you can. I know some people that have just really high capacity, but not necessarily a loving and compassionate life. They can get through, they can have fun, they can even enjoy the adrenaline rush. But man, spiritual life, with God and with other people, that's a whole other thing. I love this from Ronald Rollheiser. It's worth kind of a, a bit of a long quote. He writes, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness distraction and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Now, to clarify what we mean by our spiritual lives, because that language is really easy to sentimentalize, especially in the church, but even in a city like Portland where there's all sorts of talk about spiritual life and what most people mean is like, I do yoga twice a week and go hiking on the weekend or whatever. It's not to slam that, but it's easy to sentimentalize this idea. What we mean by our spiritual life is our capacity to receive and give love in relationship with God and others. To receive love from God and others, but in particular from God, and then to give that love back to God and to others, to our friends and to our family, and eventually, we stay at it long enough even to our enemies. And hurry is incompatible with love. It's just oil and water. They do not mix. The late Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama has this little book called Three Mile an Hour God. It's just a collection of essays, beautiful theologian in mind. There's this little essay on love that it's the title to it, Three Mile an Hour of God, which apparently is the speed of walking. I had to Google it, what is that? But apparently, three miles per hour is the speed of walking. And he said this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed, 
It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. I wrote this in the 70s, by the way. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. Just let that sink in for a moment. It's the reason we talk about walking with God, not running with God, not hurrying with God, but waiting on God. The more I think about the age of the universe, the more I walk in Forest Park, I read that little book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Anybody read that? You just get this perspective on like how slow trees are. The more I respect the speed of God, the speed of his love, the speed of how he created the universe. We see this on display in Jesus of Nazareth. You know, one of the first things I notice when I read the Gospels is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. God bless you. (laughs) Willard was once asked to describe Jesus in one word. He thought about it for a minute, and you know what he said? He said, uh, relaxed. Is that that the first, like, what's Jesus to you in one word? Well, I don't know what you would say, powerful, loving, wise, wicked, smart. I don't know what you, that's two words, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Relaxed. I mean, when you read these stories, he's just so present to the moment, present to his own soul, what's going on inside of him, what's going on outside of him, to the soul of the woman or the man in front of him, to people in need, not just the important person or the high-energy person or the status person, but the woman in the back who just, who touched me, so present to what God was doing in that moment, like, I always do what I see the Father He's just so present to the here and now. I mean, think about how many of the stories, maybe you've not paid attention to this, just in your gospel reading, start to like make a little tally or pay attention to how many of not only the stories, but the teachings of Jesus are responses to interruptions. I don't have a percentage for you. My guess is it's well over half. C.S. Lewis once said something to the fact that how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. If you're a parent, that that one just killed you right there. But like, it's in those moments where we're unguarded and we don't know what to say. We don't have time to like craft a text message response that's, you know, like it's just who we are there in the moment. All of our insecurity, all of our anger, all of our fear, all of our love, just it's there, that interruption moment. That's actually who we are. And I don't know about you, but... Usually, I respond to interruptions with anxiety at best or irritation and anger at worst. Jesus responded with compassion, with wisdom, with presence, and with love. And he calls you and I as his apprentices to that, to slow down to that loving kind of speed of relationship. Case in point, take a look with me at Luke chapter 10. Thank you for your patience. So read a well-known story. Chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the Torah stood up to test Jesus. So again, this is basically just an interruption, right? This is un- unscheduled. Rabbi, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, of course, in the West, we often read that as, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? And that's not exactly what he's asking. What he's asking is, When the kingdom of God arrives here on earth, in Jerusalem, in Israel, and God is king once and for all, what what do I need to do to, to be a part of it, to participate in what God is on about in the kingdom of God? 
Now, I came from a church tradition where this is what Jesus is supposed to say. He's supposed to say, you don't do anything. It's all about what I've done for you. It's just by grace through faith, none of this works-based righteousness stuff, just believe in me. Notice, Jesus basically says the exact opposite. 26, what is written in the Torah? He replied, how do you read it? What's your interpretation of the Bible? The man answered, Deuteronomy 6, there's a quote. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's called the Shema, the central prayer of the Hebrew Bible. And here's a quote from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's how Jesus answered the same question. That was Jesus' answer as well. Hence, 28, you've answered correctly. How nice would it be to hear that from Jesus? (laughs) Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Notice, no timeline attached to live. For Jesus, life in the kingdom of God, or what is often translated in the NIV as eternal life, it starts now. It lasts forever, but it starts now. It's not just about quantity of life forever. It's about quality of life, a way of being in relationship with love and joy and peace in the kingdom, under the rule and the reign of God, with God in his presence and near his goodness. That starts now, the moment we say yes to Jesus and enter his kingdom. Live this way. Live with a whole person orientation of love toward God and love toward neighbor man, you will live. You will experience the life of the kingdom. Sounds great, but it's not the end of the story. 29, but he wanted to justify himself. Like so many of us, he wanted to feel good about himself. You ever have those moments where you sense that maybe somebody is calling you to a a higher level of morality or a higher way of life, but you just, you you have this inner, whether it's a defense mechanism or fear or anger, or you just don't want to, you just want to, we all want to feel good about ourselves. We're no different than this man. Wanting to feel good about himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Never ask Jesus a leading question, just word of wisdom. In reply, Jesus said, and this is one of his most famous teachings, notice it was an off-the-cuff reply to an interruption. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. This is a famous road, um, a couple dozen miles, and it's through this really dangerous, barren canyon. I've actually been there, and it was well known in the first century as a haunting place for theft, robbery, violence. It's like, I was thinking about this morning, like think of like the original Star Wars before it was all like monetized and ruined by Hollywood, back when it was art house and awesome. Remember in the first one when R2-D2 is like going through the canyons and he's attacked by the, what the little guys called? The Udini, those guys, you know what I'm talking about? It looks exactly like that, like this little dirt winding road through all these like crevices. What are they called? Anybody remember? Jawas. Jawas. That's right. Got it. Thank you. Sorry. It's clear. Yes. Jawas. Thank you. So I felt like I was just rebuked there, but (laughs) (laughs) at least I remembered Udini, like all that. Um, It looks exactly like that. So there's all these little cracks and crevices for a, for a robber to hide and jump out and abandon you. In fact, some scholars think this is not a parable think this is a real life story that was almost like Jesus telling, like we would tell a story from the civil rights movement or something like that because of how it ends. Keep reading. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went him away, went away, leaving him half dead just there on the side of the road. Now 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, kind of the next level down, 
when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity, or that can be translated, had compassion or had mercy on him. Now, Samaritan and Jews, if you know anything about first century, were like arch enemies, almost like similar to like Jews and Palestinians today, like real deep racial strife and, and long history of violence between the two groups. So this is the bad guy, so to speak, if you're a first century Jew. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which were expensive. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, okay, so now we're a full 24 hours later, he took out two denarii. Denarii was a day's wages. So this is, think of whatever your salary is, calculate it by day and multiply it by two. It was two days' worth of salary. Look after him, he said to the innkeeper, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the Torah replied, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even bring himself to say the man's name. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Just the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, what? Go and do likewise. Now, um, this is a well-known story, and the downside to that is that it's really easy to kind of domesticate it's actually a very subversive story. I have a Jewish friend who was following Jesus for many years, but immigrated to Israel and eventually denied Jesus for a number of reasons, but this was one of the main stories that she brought up when I had a conversation with her, and she said, I just can't follow Jesus because he tells stories like this about Samaritans, the enemies of Israel. Nobody, I would never follow somebody that would call me to love my enemy like this. So this is a really subversive story. It's a story about racism. It's a story about violence and nonviolence. Jesus makes the enemy the hero. I mean, again, we say the good Samaritan, and we think of that as like a feel-good, like nice person on the side of the road. That would be, to a first century Jew, to hear the phrase, the good Samaritan, would be like us hearing the good Taliban or the good ISIS fighter. Like, we just don't even have a category because of the level of acrimony that we have. And it's easy to mock the priest and the Levite and think, ah, oh, religious people are the worst, and pastors especially, or whatever. And there's some truth in that. But until you realize, until you actually like just think about it for a minute, you realize they would have more than likely been going to or coming from the temple in Jerusalem back to Jericho, which was the home base for a lot of the priests and the Levites at the time. They are Torah observant. Historians argue they would have most likely been on a two-week shift. So you go to the temple, you, uh, you walk away from your family who's living in Jericho, you go to the temple for two weeks, you serve, and then you have some time off. And remember that they're Torah observant, and the Torah was very clear, if you've ever read Leviticus, about your interaction with a dead body, in particular if you're a priest. You touch a dead body, you are unclean for days. Add to that that these priests and Levites lived off people's tithes, which in that time, currency was not gold coins, it was food and animal products, right? So they more than likely would have been carrying home food to feed their family, that if they became unclean, then the food would have become unclean. So just think about this. There's a dead body on the side of the road, or you think it's most likely a dead body. You're not sure, but in order to double check, to check the pulse, you become unclean, you lose multiple days before you go to get your family or you're late for your shift, and you lose all of the income that you just earned or the food to feed your family. It's a busy road, people are gonna come and go. How many of you in that moment would think, 
somebody else can take care of the dead body. Well, you think I would never do that. How many times have any of us often going to or coming from church passed by a houseless person on the side of the road and not even like, sorry, I don't have time, and just kept going? Or a car broken down on the side of the road. And well, somebody else will help. You're all looking at me with blank stares. Okay, I guess I'm the only horrible person in the room. I've done that because that takes time. Because I've been in the city long enough. I've talked to people that work with houseless people. They've all said the same thing. Never give money. Give yourself. Give time. Give relationship. So don't give money. But anytime that happens, offer to buy somebody lunch. Stop and go have a meal with them. Yeah, but that takes like an hour. I'm late for coffee. Like, I have to go pastor people into the way of Jesus. I don't have time to stop right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. You, you caught me. Exactly. It would, it's re- my point is it's really easy to judge. And this is, just, this is a caricature. Of course, this is like a dead body on the side of the road. or like is, is a, This is more severe. But this is, a, this is a thing in all of us where we just don't want to slow down to love in the way that Jesus has. This is, my point is, this is real life. Jesus is calling his apprentices to slow down and make space for love. Because again, hurry is incompatible with love. Think back to our vision series and the teaching just a few weeks ago on becoming a person of love, which for me, I don't know if it was that great of a teaching, but it was the culmination of my thinking over many years and my just own apprenticeship to Jesus. We said that for Jesus, the telos of the spiritual journey, or put another way, the meaning and purpose of life itself is to become the kind of person who is pervaded by love. But hurry sabotages our capacity both to receive and to give love. Let's take those one at a time. First off, to receive love from God, from others as well, but in particular from God. In that same teaching, we said that our working theory of how we become more loving is at its most basic. If you have to like summarize and truncate the whole thing down, it's we let God love us through what Paul and the tradition of Jesus calls contemplation, where we just contemplate the love of God coming toward us from the Trinitarian community of agape. We just direct the inner gaze of our heart. We look at God looking at us in love, and we experience his love, not just in our mind, as Paul said, that you may know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Paul, brilliant intellectual, but there's something more than just a book or a theology or a doctrine, not because those are bad, because we need experiential knowledge. We need to actually be loved by God and by his sons and daughters to become people of love. But this takes time, am I right? It takes time to let God love us into our best selves. My ultra-charismatic friends, I'm a charismatic, but I have some ultra-charismatic friends. Some of you know what I mean. They have this phrase, well, they'll just talk about soaking. And I think it's so cheesy. But what they mean is just like soaking in God's presence. Sometimes they just lay on the floor. I'm like, Do we, can I sit down? Is that okay? And they'll just like soaking in God's love. And, so, and like it's easy to laugh at that, but that, that's contemplation. Just sitting and just soaking in the love of God for us. For all of the talk about a personal relationship with Jesus in the American church, it's easy to forget that a relationship, at least an intimate one, takes a lot of time. I only have a few really close relationships because I don't have enough time. It takes a lot of time to stand in that kind of a friendship or marriage or relationship. There was a saying back in the 90s, in particular in the parenting literature, that was, it was really cheesy, but it was so good. Love is spelled T-I-M-E. And the idea was that, man, the way that we love each other is we give time and attention to each other. We all want to, every parent wants to hack the system. 
Like it's about you know, quantity of time, not quality. But then you learn like it doesn't work that way. Because you don't, with kids, don't let you schedule love. They're not like, Dad, can you love me 3 p.m. on Thursday? All right, can I make an appointment with Deanna to get some time with you? I know it's book release work week, but I'd love some love on Thursday afternoon. No, they just like barge into your life, interrupt everything that you're doing, and just start talking to you. And how you respond, exactly. And how you respond to interruptions is who you really are as a mother, as a father, as a friend, as a spouse, as a roommate. To be in any kind of long, anybody in a long-term friendship or marriage or anything like that, community knows this. You don't get depth of intimacy without long hours together. My wife is down in Australia with Bethany this week. They're both teaching for a women's conference, which is really fun. And uh, so we text a little bit every day. We're not like big FaceTime, talk on the phone people when we travel. And um, so we, we text a little bit, but we're kind of out of touch. I kind of don't know how she is. She kind of doesn't know how I am. I'm like, thank you for asking for single parenting your children, but she didn't ask. She's apparently on the beach just having a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> uh, so not that there's any bitterness in there at all. Now that's fine for a week to kind of get out of touch and kind of like live separate lives for a little bit. That's totally fine for a week. But if that became our new normal, text message here, a little thought there, a quick FaceTime, okay, got to get back to feeding the kids while you're on the beach. Have fun on the beach, honey. Um, or what, I'm kidding. Um, what, if that became our new normal, our relationship would die out really fast. Because to be in an intimate, loving relationship, marital or not, you have to dedicate a lot of time to it. And our relationship with God is not that different. The Anglican priest, W.F. Adams, who was C.S. Lewis' spiritual director for many years, once called hurry the death of prayer and said to walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. It comes as no surprise that a recent New York Times article called Atheism the Religion of the Busy. But just as important, hurry also sabotages our capacity to give love. I don't know about you, but Pretty much all of my worst moments as a husband or father or friend or pastor or community member are when I'm in a hurry and I don't have time and I'm stressed out and I just don't have the capacity right now to give you my attention. I think of the common trope, at least for me, of trying to get my family out of the house. Like my kids apparently just don't share a high value for like punctuality to things. They share a much higher value for things like Legos and whatever. And so, like, you know, I, like, there's this common thing in our house where I'm trying to get us somewhere on time. I have three beautiful, wonderful, easily distracted children. I have a wife who's Latina, who just different relationship to time, who values people over punctuality. It's so ridiculous. Um, and <laughs> all this stuff from a warm culture. And, and when I pay attention to so this, this feeling of, like, trying to get them out of the house on time, like, to church or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> to preach, um, uh, whatever. <laughs> when I pay attention to myself in those moments of hurry and stress, it is not love that is coming out of my body at all. It's, hey, you, get in the car right now, but dad, can we, I don't have time to talk about getting in the car right now. Like, by the time we're pulling out of the driveway, like, one of my kids is in tears, and my wife and I are in a minor tiff, and it's like, what, what is this? Whatever that is, it's not love. That's not love. That's not compassion. It's anger, it's irritation, it's sarcasm, it's impatience, it's I don't have time for you. 
Is it any surprise that in Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the first descriptor on the list is, quote, love is patient. Another way to translate that from the Greek is love is unhurried, or love is not in a rush, or love takes all the time that is necessary. Hurry oxidizes our inner sense of compassion. Compassion, as we all know, is a feeling word. Love is actually not, it's more of an action word. Compassion, which is tied to love, is a feeling word. It means that we slow down long enough to feel what another person is feeling in a kind of solidarity. All sorts of studies have been done by clinical psychologists on the decline of compassion in our nation over the last few decades. And with it, the rise of outrage culture via social media, the 24-hour news cycle, the anger in politics. Many of them tie it, and this isn't to discount the legitimate things out there that are worth some anger, but many of them tie it to the speed of our life. As we move into an election year and the outrage culture on both the right and the left just spins out of control, I think the only chance we have of living a compassionate life is to slow down long enough to hear other people, to sit with other people in real life, not in a Twitter feed, to see our nation from their perspective, consider how they feel, even if at the end we disagree. Like so many sociological studies have been done um, on, on the correlation between listening and loving, when people feel listened to, they feel loved. Even if you literally have zero disagreement, if you will literally give somebody your attention, your ear, your presence, even if at the end of the day you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't agree with that, they feel um, at a neurobiological level, it, it comes to us as love, right? So much of this. I'm reading right now... Uh, the Unwinding by George Packer, which is one of the best nonfiction books I've read in years. And it just basically tells the story of, from his perspective, the decline of our nation since the 1950s. And kind of this, you know, from this time of thriving middle class and blue collar workers living great lives and issues, but, and he tells it through the stories of race, of gender, of sexuality, all this stuff, but with no political commentary. He just like tells stories. And it's just what it is doing in my heart like all sorts of people on the far right and the far left, that I just think, you guys are ridiculous. And then you hear the stories. And you're like, I, I don't agree with that, but man, like, ah, oh, what would that be like? And how would it be like to live in my car with three kids? And what would this be like? And, and, and you just, all of a sudden, this new thing comes up in my heart when I actually take time, and I'm just reading a book that's not even a real person. It's just real stories. This is what compassion does. But hurry doesn't have time for this. Hurry doesn't have time for love. That's why hurry, it just, Merton called hurry a pervasive form of contemporary violence because it kills relationships. It kills compassion. It kills wisdom. I mean, to take time with the complexity of a globalized world and a nation like ours, to think well and to actually climb into the reality and the complexity of the issues, that just takes a lot of time. Most of us don't have time for that. Like, like, dislike, on to the next thing, go. It just kills wisdom, it kills compassion, it kills love. So, what to do? Well, if hurry is the problem, I would argue, and I'll make my case for this more next week, that the solution is not more time. I would argue that instead, it's to slow down and simplify our life around becoming people of love. Again, I'll give you my logic for that in a week or two. But the way that we do this is through, in the Christian tradition, what is called a rule of life. 
Now, rule of life um, is ancient language, not modern, so it sounds really strange to our ears. Notice it's rule, singular of life, not rules for life. So don't, all you anti-rule people, which is all of us pretty much in Portland, it's not rules for life, not that I'm against that, but rule of life. It was popularized in the sixth century by Saint Benedict, whom we call the founder of Western monasticism, but it goes back at least as far as the second century, if not before. Next week, I'll give an entire teaching on rule of life, so for today, let me just define it as a set of practices and relational rhythms, both scheduled and spontaneous, that create space to receive and give love, to receive love from God and to give love back to God and to others. Our goal is to invite you, and we'll talk a lot about this, but we'll invite you to create your own personal rule of life. If you're in a marriage or have a family, or create one for that as well if you want. If you go to practicingtheway.org unhurry, we've made a workbook for you to create your rule of life along with recommended reading and such. But for this week, um, we just want to invite you to two very simple practices. So simple, we didn't even write up like a worksheet for you. This is just, this is it right now. First, we just want to invite you to pay attention to the speed at which you move through your week and your day, to your mind, to your body. How often do you notice yourself in a hurry? What does that feel like? How does that corrode relationships with people in front of you? Think of, maybe go back and sit with Ruth Haley Barton's list and just sit in that for a moment. How do I feel about that? How many of those things are true of me? How do I feel when I slow down, better or worse? Just notice without judgment or guilt or shame, just with attention and awareness. Secondly, practice slowing. Just say no. If you want to get like really type A, just when you go out to your car before you go home or whatever, just pull out your calendar and murder eight things, just like whatever <laughs> you want to do, um, or, or start much smaller than that. But, but maybe cut some things out of your week. Maybe cancel something. Maybe put away your devices for a night. Maybe do something you love, like go hiking in Forest Park or get tea with the best friend or read some poetry or go for a run or whatever your thing is. Take a nap. Literally practice what Richard Foster calls the spiritual discipline of slowing, where you intentionally place your mind and bodies in situations where you have to wait in order to let God transform you into a person of compassionate love. And just see how it goes. To that end, um, or to end, a year or two ago when I was eating lunch with my non-mentor, John Ortberg, um, he said something to the effect of, you know, I can't live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. I just kept thinking about that, I can't live. Not I should not live, I can't. Jesus had a lot of teachings like that where he just make a statement about reality. Can't, it's incompatible. Life in the kingdom doesn't work. I can't live under the rule of God in this reality of love from the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace and live a life of chronic overwork, exhaustion, no rest, digital distraction, hurry, busyness, and so on. In our culture, it's so funny, you know, slow, as we all know, is a pejorative. So when somebody's not very smart, we call them slow. When the servant at a service at a restaurant is lousy, we call it slow. When a movie is boring or artistic, we call it <laughs> slow, right? Um, so the message that we imbibe is slow is bad, fast is good. I mean, Amazon, like that, that is the business of a generation. But in the kingdom of God, it's 180 degrees. Hurry is of the devil, and slow is the speed of love. And so in a city like ours, in a day and age like ours, we, we have to be ruthless, hence that language. 
We have, it's like an act of resistance against the empire, you know? Seriously, we have to, we have to cultivate acts of resistance or, or counter practices that we'll talk about, like Sabbath and slowing and silence and solitude and simplicity, to like resist the onslaught of speed and to live in the kingdom of love. To end, again, Ortberg was kind enough to write the foreword for my book, which was a great honor. And I was rereading it um, a few days ago when I got my copy of my book for real. And my favorite line in it is this. He wrote this. To choose to live an unhurried life in our day is somewhat like taking a vow of poverty in earlier centuries. It is scary. It is an act of faith. But there are deeper riches on the other side. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.